0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. For the most part, until the 1990s or so, a lot of times, timelines of the civil rights movement in the United States marked its beginning... As either Brown versus Board on May 17th of 1954, or with Rosa Parks' refusal to give up her bus seat on December 1st of 1955. And it's definitely true that movements usually have multiple beginning parts. (laughs) A lot of times people will note like one keystone moment, but usually there are a lot of things that happen. But these uh, timelines from a couple of decades ago often didn't really pay a lot of attention to another event that happened in between those two, which was the August 1955 murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till. But then a couple of books came out that started to change all of that. One was A Death in the Delta, the Story of Emmett Till by Stephen J. Whitfield, which came out in 1988. And the other was Emmett Till, the Sacrificial Lamb of the Civil Rights Movement, which was based on Clonora Hudson-Weems' 1988 doctoral dissertation. um, And that second book came out in 1994. So along with other writings, these two books really started to bring renewed public attention to the murder and to the role that it played as a really powerful catalyst in the civil rights movement. Multiple other books have followed, and that includes some that were published as recently as 2015 and 2017, which is the year that we're recording this episode. But the reason that Emmett Till's murder played such a consequential role in the civil rights movement is really the choices that his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, made. She faced the death of her child with extraordinary bravery and clarity and grace. And for more than 45 years after his murder, she continually worked to make sure that he didn't die in vain. So she is who we are going to talk about today.
1: And Mamie Elizabeth Carthen was born on November 23, 1921, in Webb, Mississippi. And When she was about two years old, her family moved to Argo, Illinois, which is outside of Chicago, during the Great Migration. And her father, Wiley Nash Carthen, had gotten a job at Argo Corn Products Refining Company. And today, Argo is actually known as Summit.
0: Mamie's father left when she was about 11. But even before that point, she was really closest to her mother, Alma. Her upbringing was strict and disciplined and religious, and her mother helped found the Argo Temple Church of God in Christ. Alma pushed Mamie to do well in school while also sheltering her from worldlier things. So in her memoir, Mamie Till Mobley would go on to describe herself as naive and trusting and really having a lot to catch up on once she was a wife and mother herself.
1: And their neighborhood in Argo was predominantly black, but the high school, Argo Community High School, was predominantly white. Mamie became the first Black student to make the school's A Honor Roll and the fourth Black student to graduate. And when she graduated, she was first in her class.
0: She married Louis Till on October 14th of 1940 when both of them were 18. And on July 25th, 1941, they had a son, Emmett Louis Till, who Mamie named after his father and her favorite uncle. But even before Emmett was born, a family friend had taken to calling him the little Bobo. And so his family and his friends generally called him Bobo or Bo for the rest of his life.
1: Mamie's relationship with Emmett's father didn't last long. While Emmett was still a baby, Lewis assaulted Mamie one night and she defended herself with a pot of hot water. Eventually, she got a restraining order and moved back in with her mother, working as a clerk typist while Alma looked after Emmett. And after Lewis repeatedly broke the restraining order, they wound up in court, where the judge gave him the option of the military or jail, and he chose the former.
0: Mamie didn't hear from Lewis for several months after that, but when she did, he let her know that he had made arrangements for her to receive part of his military pay, But on July 13th of 1945, Mamie got a telegram that Lewis had been killed in Italy. We'll go into a little more detail about this later in the episode, but for the rest of Emmett's life, the only information that Mamie had was that his father had died due to, quote, willful misconduct, and that for that reason, they wouldn't receive survivor benefits.
1: Emmett was just about to turn four when his father died, and the only one of Lewis's possessions that Mamie received from the army after his death was a signet ring engraved with his initials, which she passed on to her son.
0: Emmett grew into a funny, fearless boy who liked to crack jokes and dress well, and when he was about five, he contracted polio. He had to be quarantined at home for about a month. After he recovered, the only lingering effect was that he spoke often with a stutter, and that was especially when he was nervous or excited.
1: During Emmett's youngest years, Alma raised him while Mamie worked, and Mamie would go on to describe her relationship with her son really as very sibling-like. Although Mamie was working to support the family, Alma was really the one running it, and in many ways she acted as mother for both her daughter and her grandson.
0: But eventually, Alma moved to Chicago, and Mamie stayed behind in Argo with Emmett, along with a network of cousins and other family members who had moved to Illinois from Mississippi. This extended family was large, and they were all really close to each other. Various members would take trips back and forth between the two states to visit one another.
1: Eventually, Mamie decided to move to Detroit to try to reconnect with her father, who she hadn't had much contact with at all since she was young. And there she met Pink Bradley, and they got married on May 5th of 1951.
0: Emmett wasn't very happy in Detroit, though, and he begged his mother to be allowed to go back to Chicago to live with his grandmother, Mamie eventually agreed, but things really just weren't working out for her in Detroit either. She was working long hours while also trying to go back and forth to Chicago to visit Emmett and her mother. So finally, after Alma sold her old house in Argo and bought a two-unit building in Chicago, Mamie, Pink, and Emmett moved into one of those two units. But not long after they moved in, Mamie discovered that Pink was seeing another woman, so she threw him out and divorced him. By the
1: time he was 11, Emmett Till had grown into an energetic and industrious boy with a bit of a mischievous streak. After Mamie's divorce from Pink Bradley, he became fiercely protective of his mother, and he also took on a lot of responsibilities at home. Mamie worked all day, first for the Social Security Administration and then for the Air Force, so Emmett did a lot of the cooking and took care of the house.
0: And it wasn't just cooking and cleaning. When Mamie bought linoleum for the kitchen floor and then bad weather kept the people who were supposed to help install it from being able to come, Emmett worked out how to do it himself, which led to the two of them tackling a whole range of home improvement projects together. He was also fond of working to make a little extra money doing things like running errands and delivering groceries. Mamie met
1: Jean Mobley one day when she went to get her nails done. Jean was working at Ford Motor Company during the day, and he was working as a barber at night. He seemed interested in her immediately, but she didn't really think he was her type, and she was understandably reluctant to start another relationship. But that started to change when she saw how good he was with Emmett.
0: In the summer of 1955, Emmett wanted to go visit his family in Mississippi, and we're going to take a quick sponsor break before we talk about that. In the summer of 1955, Mamie began planning a vacation. She planned a road trip with Jean and Emmett. First, they would go to Detroit and then to Omaha, but Emmett really had a different idea. Mamie's uncle, Mose Wright, who was a preacher and sharecropper who lived outside of Money, Mississippi, had come up to Chicago for a funeral. And when he went back home, he was going to take Emmett's cousin and close friend Wheeler Parker with him for a visit. Another Chicago cousin, Curtis Jones, was going to join them in Mississippi as well. This sounded like a tremendous adventure.
1: It was, in Mamie's words, as close to summer camp as Emmett was going to get, and Emmett was set on going. And this idea, though, made Mamie incredibly nervous, but she did finally agree to it.
0: Before Emmett left, his mother had a talk with him. As she framed it in her memoir, quote, the talk every black parent had with every child sent down south back then. It was a talk about what white society expected of black people in the deep south. She told him to speak only when spoken to and to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir. And if he saw a white woman walking down the sidewalk, he was to step off the sidewalk and lower his head and wait until she had passed to get back on it again without ever looking directly at her or making eye contact. Mamie hoped that this talk that she had with him and the fact that he would be in the care of family who actually lived in Mississippi and knew all these unwritten rules intuitively would keep him safe while he was there.
1: He left on August 20th, 1955. They were running late that morning, and when they got to the train station, he ran up to the platform without kissing Mamie goodbye. She called him back, and he gave her a kiss and his watch, saying he wasn't going to need it while he was gone. And she asked if he also wanted her to hang on to his father's ring, which he was wearing, and he said that he wanted to show it off to his cousins.
0: Mamie had intended to go ahead and take the vacation she'd been planning, but she couldn't motivate herself to get ready for it. She just missed Emmett terribly, and even though they'd been separated before, this was different. She was worried sick about him, and since the Wrights didn't have a phone, it wasn't easy for her to check on him. The only way she could talk to him was if she called one of the Wrights' neighbors who did have a phone and see if they could find him.
1: Mamie got a letter from Emmett on August 27th, enclosed with a note from her aunt, Lizzie Wright, saying what a nice boy she had raised. Emmett's letter asked if she could please get his bike fixed before he got home.
0: That night, Mamie hosted a meeting for her ladies club, which was her first real social interaction since Emmett had gone to Mississippi. Having people around felt like a welcome relief, and everybody stayed up so late talking and visiting that she made an early breakfast before people left, and then went to bed to try to get some sleep before church.
1: Then, about 9.30 in the morning on August 28th, Mamie got a call from her cousin, Willie Mae Jones. That was Curtis's mother. And Willie Mae told Mamie that some white men had come and taken Emmett away from the Wrights' home in the middle of the night.
0: Here's what had happened. On August 24th, Emmett and his cousins had driven into Money, Mississippi to buy some gum and candy at Bryant's grocery store. There are a lot of conflicting reports about exactly what happened while they were there. Carolyn Bryant, the proprietor's wife, claimed that he had physically grabbed her, threatened her, and made lewd comments to her while he was in the store. In 2017, the book The Blood of Emmett Till was published in which she admitted that all of that was false. Witnesses,
1: including some of Emmett's cousins, said that at some point Emmett whistled at Carolyn. His cousins theorized that it might have been to try to impress them or make them laugh. And his mother theorized that he had whistled because he was stuttering. That was a trick that he had learned that could help him get his words out when he was having trouble.
0: Regardless, Emmett's cousins weren't impressed or amused. They were scared. They all piled back into the car and drove away as quickly as possible, even at one point abandoning the car to cut through the fields and hide. They talked among themselves about whether they should send Emmett back to Chicago. But a couple of days later, when nothing bad had happened, they forgot about it.
1: But then, at about 2.30 a.m. on August 28th, Carolyn Bryant's husband Roy and his brother-in-law, J.W. Milam, showed up at the Wright home, asking for the boy from Chicago, the one who had, quote, done all that talk. Mose and Lizzie Wright both tried to reason with them and even offered them money to just leave Emmett alone. But the two men, who were armed, refused.
0: So that was all that they really knew at that point. After she got the call from Willie Mae Jones, Mamie called Jean. They went together to her mother's house to tell her what had happened and to wait for news of Emmett. Both women were distraught, especially since they couldn't reach the rights for an update. Soon, Mamie started calling newspapers, and when reporters arrived, she told them that white men had come into her uncle's home in Muddy, Mississippi and kidnapped her son.
1: On Monday morning, August 29th, Rayfield Moody, the nephew of Alma's husband, connected Mamie to the Chicago office of the NAACP. The NAACP referred her to William Henry Huff, chairman of the Legal Redress Committee. The two men began putting Mamie in touch with people and resources in both Mississippi and Illinois. Soon, Illinois Governor William Stratton, Chicago Mayor Richard J. Daley, and Congressman William Dawson were involved in the search for Emmett. They were making and receiving so many calls that the family added a second phone line.
0: That same day, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam were arrested for kidnapping Emmett Till, something they both admitted that they had done. In Chicago, the
1: family kept waiting, making calls, and sending money to Mississippi to help with the search. And then on Wednesday, August 31st, they got the news. A fisherman had found Emmett's body in the Tallahatchie River. He had been badly beaten and probably shot, and his body had been weighed down with the fan of a cotton gin tied to his neck with barbed wire. His body was so badly disfigured that they were only able to identify him by his father's ring, which he was still wearing.
0: In Mississippi, Tallahatchie County Sheriff H.C. Strider called in a black undertaker and told him to bury the body immediately. Emmett's cousin Curtis called home to make sure Mamie knew what was happening.
1: Mamie, of course, did not want her son to be buried in Mississippi, She and others started making calls, adamant that Emmett's body be returned to Chicago. And they eventually contacted A.A. Rayner, a black funeral director in Chicago, who took over the arrangements. And he eventually let Mamie know that they could bring the body back, but that it would cost $3,300. That was nearly Mamie's annual salary, but she agreed.
0: Demanding that Emmett's body be brought back to Chicago and not buried in Mississippi was the first of several actions that Mamie would take that would propel her son's death into the international spotlight and then go on to spark a groundswell of civil rights activism. So we're going to talk about that more after another quick sponsor break. Hill's body arrived in Chicago by train on Friday, September 2nd, 1955. When she asked to see her son, Mamie learned that A.A. Rayner had agreed to conduct the funeral and bury the body in the box that it had been shipped in without opening the box. That was one of the conditions that he had had to agree to in order to get the body released. Mamie
1: said if she had to get a hammer, she would open it herself. And A.A. Rayner finally relented.
0: Yeah, he basically told her to go home and get a little rest and he would prepare things for her to come and view the body. Mamie Till Mobley has described the experience of seeing her son's body herself in a number of places, including in her memoir, The Death of Innocence, in the PBS American Experience known as The Death of Emmett Till, and in the documentary, The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till. In short, she was methodical and she refused to turn away, and by the time she was done, she had resolved that Emmett should have an open casket funeral to, quote, let the world see what I've seen. She also chose to have pictures of his body published in the Chicago Defender and in Jet Magazine, two publications with a predominantly Black readership. The photographs were then picked up in other publications from there.
1: Thousands of people attended Emmett's funeral on September 3rd, with tens of thousands more viewing the body, which was under glass in the casket. And that was in the four days that followed. And at this point, the murder had become international news. But in the white Southern press, much of the media focus was on humanizing pieces on J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant, covering their past military service and the wholesome lives of their wives and children. And Sheriff Strider began spreading the word that he had doubts that the body being buried was really Emmett Till's and that he had evidence that the murder had really been staged by the NAACP.
0: Emmett Till's body was buried on Tuesday, September 6th. and on the same day, a grand jury indicted Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam for murder.
1: In Mississippi, it was common knowledge that J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant had killed Emmett Till but public opinion in the white community was that they did not need to face trial or go to prison over it. Businesses began putting out donation jars, eventually raising $10,000 for them, even as all five attorneys practicing in the town of Sumner, where the trial was to be held, signed on to represent them pro bono.
0: With Tallahatchie County authorities seeming more interested in spreading rumors and undermining the case than in investigating it, the NAACP and civil rights activists, including Medgar Evers, took on their own investigation and tried to convince the Department of Justice to make it a federal case. Medgar Evers, Ruby Hurley, and Amzie Moore, along with others, visited the cotton fields around Money, Mississippi to try to find witnesses who were willing to risk their lives by testifying against white men.
1: In response, Sheriff Strider said Mississippi did not need or want the help of the NAACP and that the trial would be, quote, fair and impartial. Before he went on to say, quote, we never had any trouble until some of our southern N-words go up north and the NAACP talks to them and then they come back home.
0: The trial began on September 19th, with the courtroom strictly segregated. The black reporters, witnesses, and Detroit Congressman Charles Diggs were all restricted to a table in a back corner.
1: On the 20th, Mamie made her first appearance in court. She had been receiving death threats since it had been reported that she would be going to Mississippi for the trial. On her way in, white reporters asked her a number of questions that implied that she had no business being there. And then, as she approached the courthouse, white boys leaned out of its windows, firing cap guns at her, with their fathers egging them on.
0: Over the course of the trial, Mose Wright identified J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant as the men who had taken Emmett in the middle of the night. Willie Reed, an 18-year-old sharecropper, testified that he had seen a group of people in the back of a pickup truck, including somebody he later understood to be Emmett Till, Later on, he had seen that truck parked outside of a shed belonging to one of J.W. Milam's relatives, and passing by that shed, he heard, quote, somebody hollering, and I heard some licks like somebody was whipping somebody. Amanda Bradley, who lived nearby as well, testified that she had seen four white men entering and exiting a barn on the property, and all three of these witnesses testified at serious risk to their own lives. All three of them fled Mississippi after the trial was over because of that threat to their lives.
1: Mamie took the stand on the fourth day of the trial, and at this point her surname was Bradley, and she is identified in court documents as Mamie Bradley. She testified as to her complete certainty that the body that had come back from Mississippi was that of her son. During the cross-examination, the defense team asked her a number of questions about whether she had life insurance for Emmett,
0: as though to sow doubt about whether she might have had her son killed for the money. Uh, you will also sometimes in reading about this trial uh, see that Mamie said that they asked her questions. That was something along the lines of, isn't it true that your son is really alive in Detroit? I think this was really part of the closing arguments and not of her questioning, because there's a transcript that was found um in, I think, 2004 uh, of her questioning that doesn't include that part. So I think all of that has been kind of meshed together uh, in her memory, the trial transcript was not found until after her death. On September 23rd, 1955, after a little more than an hour of deliberating, a jury of 12 white men returned a not guilty verdict in the murder trial. Jurors would later say that they could have come back much sooner, but they were told to make it look good. Uh, Mamie and several of the other people who were with her were not actually in the courtroom. They had realized what verdict was going to come back and decided they would prefer not to be present for it.
1: Along with the murder and funeral, the trial and the not guilty verdict sparked international outrage and galvanized the black community within the civil rights movement, as well as prompting an influx of donations to the NAACP and other civil rights organizations. Other key events in the civil rights movement quickly followed, including the Montgomery bus boycott. In Mamie Till Mobley's words, quote, "'When people saw what had happened to my son, men stood up who had never stood up before.'"
0: After the verdict, Mamie began to travel, giving speeches about the life and the death of her son and advocating for civil rights and anti-lynching laws. And for a time, this was under the auspices of the NAACP, but this fell apart due to a disagreement about her accepting payments for her speeches. But even after that working relationship was over, she continued to travel and speak about her son for most of the rest of her life.
1: Because Emmett had been kidnapped from one county and killed in another, a separate grand jury was convened in the matter of the kidnapping after the murder trial had concluded. But just before that was to happen, Anti-Integration Senator James O. Eastland obtained and released the details of the death of Emmett's father. This was when Mamie learned that Lewis had been court-martialed and found guilty of murder and rape.
0: There are a lot of questions about this case and about whether Lewis Till was wrongfully accused. And they're way more than we can get into in the scope of this podcast, but they are detailed in the book, Writing to Save a Life, the Lewis Till File. But the implication in releasing this information to the press was that criminal behavior and sexual violence ran in the Till family. The grand jury in the kidnapping case of Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam did not return an indictment. And the case never went to trial, even though both men had already admitted that they did it.
1: Mamie went to the Army to try to find out why a senator had been given access to records that she had not been allowed to have. She attempted to petition the president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, but he wouldn't meet with her and he didn't return her telegram. She tried to press the FBI to open an investigation to the death of her son. But Director J. Edgar Hoover wrote in a memo, quote, There has been no allegation made that the victim has been subjected to the deprivation of any right or privilege which is secured and protected by the Constitution and the laws of the United States.
0: And then, after all of this, on January 24th, 1956, Look Magazine published an article in which Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam confessed to killing Emmett Till. Their version of the story, which they were paid about $4,000 to tell, described Emmett as lewd and indecent and made it sound as though they had acted alone, even though other people were definitely involved.
1: Once again, people were outraged. Since the two men had already been found not guilty of murder, they could not be tried again. So people called for the kidnapping case to be reopened. Mamie tried to sue Look Magazine and reporter William Bradford Huey for defamation. But the suit was dismissed because Emmett Till, not his mother, was the person that the article defamed.
0: The months after the Look Magazine article were particularly hard for Mamie, not only because of the way it portrayed her son, but also because it became the source that everyone cited when talking about the case. It really made her angry that a number of Black reporters had literally risked their lives investigating and reporting about her son. And at this point, all of that reporting was disregarded in favor of the confession of two white men who had horrible things to say about her son while they confessed. It was only after a reporter called her to do a follow-up on her and she just sort of spontaneously said that she was going to be a teacher that she found a new focus for her life. And soon she was enrolled in Chicago Teachers College.
1: Mamie married Jean Mobley on June 24, 1957, while she was studying to be a teacher. She graduated cum laude in 1960 and she taught until her retirement in 1983. And every five years after Emmett's murder, she retold his story to reporters covering the anniversary of his death and the trial. In addition, she cooperated with multiple researchers and historians working on books about the case. She appeared in multiple documentaries, was on an episode of Oprah on witnesses of murders during the civil rights era. She was also on a radio program where she listened on the line as Roy Bryant talked about the case Including saying that Emmett Till had ruined his life. In
0: 1973, she founded a theater group in Chicago called the Emmett Till Players. In 1975, she earned a master's degree in administration and supervision from Loyola University. She continued working with the Emmett Till Players and with her church, as well as traveling and speaking and participating in ceremonies commemorating the civil rights movement for as long as her health would allow.
1: Mamie's mother, Alma, died on November 11th, 1981. Jean Mobley died on March 18th of 2000. And Mamie Till Mobley died on January 7th, 2003, at the age of 81. That was not long before the debut of the PBS American Experience documentary, The Death of Emmett Till, which she appears in. Uh, she was also working on her memoir at the time of her death, and that was published posthumously.
0: In May 2004, in part because of all of this attention that came from her memoir and the American Experience documentary, the FBI reopened the investigation into the murder of Emmett Till. It issued a lengthy report in 2006, but maintained that the statute of limitations had run out for federal civil rights charges. No new indictments were issued for people who had previously not been tried. And at that point, most of the people who were involved had died.
1: The FBI's investigation involved exhuming Emmett's body for an autopsy. By law, a new casket had to be used when the body was reburied. And at first, the original casket remained at the cemetery. Eventually, members of the family approached Lonnie Bunch, founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, about preserving it, and it is now in the museum's collection.
0: The photos of her son that she chose to share through Jet Magazine and the Chicago Defender are now one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential pictures of all time. And in her words, quote, if it can further the cause of freedom, then I will say that he died a hero. That's Mamie Till Mobley. She was stronger than I think I could have been in the same circumstances. I uh, I agree with that sentiment a lot. Um her name is brought up a lot, sometimes, um, as criticism of other mothers, <laughs> which I, I don't like. I, the, the degree of grace and determination that she approached so many things with is I like just not, if that's an incredibly high bar. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's like a superhuman standard to hold up for comparison.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um and it also is really important to note that she really she the the places that she chose to share the pictures of her son were places with a predominantly uh black audience. Like that that was who she was most interested in making sure they had seen what had happened to her child. And while it did also spread outrage among white communities um and and lead to some uh like white involvement in the civil rights movement, the overwhelmingly it was something that galvanized people and inspired people to act within black communities. Um, like when you look at pictures of the funeral, the, the people who, who came to see the body and to the funeral, like it's a, it's an overwhelmingly black crowd. I think in more recent years, sometimes on social media, it gets twisted around with a weird idea that it was, crucial to getting white people involved in the movement. And while that was kind of an after effect, like that was not the primary source of, of inspiring people to act.
1: I'm hoping with fingers crossed that listener mail is a little bit of a relief because this is a very uh, heavy episode.
0: It is a very heavy episode. And unfortunately listener mail is not, not like a super fun time. Tracy. Um, I know. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> uh, so we have gotten the same, Question slash comment, uh, about our recent episode, the Calicax and the Eugenicists, a number of times, enough times that I wanted to address it, um, rather than reading any one particular one of the emails. A lot of people have written in to ask why we did not talk about Margaret Sanger in that episode. And overwhelmingly, these have included an either implied or explicit accusation that we didn't bring her up because of her, because of our personal politics which is not the case. Long story short, that episode was really focused on the Calicac family study and the role that it played in compulsory sterilization programs. So that episode was not about reversible contraception like diaphragms and spermicides or on the eugenics movement in general. And if it had been about either of those things, we definitely would have talked about Margaret Sanger. But there is a huge difference between permanently sterilizing somebody without their consent and... Fitting them for a diaphragm and teaching them how to use it. Right. Um, if, if it had been about birth control or if it had been about the eugenics movement in general, we certainly would have talked about Margaret Sanger. And we did, in fact, talk about Margaret Sanger in our episode on Catherine Dexter McCormick and the development of oral contraception because it was relevant to what we were talking about. Uh, basically Margaret Sanger's work and legacy are also really complicated and messy and full of nuance and getting into that would have been a just huge and lengthy, uh, digression in an episode that was really focused on something else. So, to be clear, it's definitely true that Margaret Sanger bought into and advocated eugenics and thought that through contraception, humanity could, quote, weed out the unfit, which is in her words. But unlike what we were talking about in the Calicac episode, her work was overwhelmingly focused on choice. She thought that people should be able to choose not to get pregnant, And when she was doing the part of her work that was like really focused on birth control advocacy, it was illegal to publish or distribute information about contraception. And a lot of, in a lot of places, contraceptives were either illegal themselves or really hard to get. So her work was really focused on changing that. She thought that preventing pregnancy would help lift people out of poverty and help improve their quality of life. And she also thought that birth control was the key to reducing the number of abortions, which were also illegal and very dangerous. And so even when she talked about sterilization, she usually, but to be clear, not universally described it as a choice, not as something that would be done in a compulsory way. So her work was just focused in a different way from the things that we were talking about in that show. People also brought up her work uh, with the Black community It is also true that Margaret Sanger worked on a program specifically to bring contraception into Black communities starting in about 1939. This was known as the Negro Project, and there were and still are people who think that this was a covert effort at genocide. But while she was definitely pretty paternalistic in how she talked about race, which is also true of how she talked about disability, she outlined reasons for the Negro Project in the same way that she outlined the need for birth control among poor white communities, which is that it would help people lift themselves out of poverty if they had the option of having fewer children. Uh, She also thought that having a program that was targeted specifically at black communities would help counteract the fact that most black people were excluded from public health clinics, which were only for white patients. So in this whole project, she had the support of a lot of Black leaders and activists, but she also wrote an observation that Black clergy could help gain the trust of Black communities in a really poorly phrased way. <laughs> like if you read this then it's like just terribly worded and that was in a letter in 1939 and this one sentence from that letter combined with some other quotes that are actually fabricated have led to a persistent belief that she went around being like you know what we could do is just stop having black people if we got them out birth control and like that's that's not the case Um, there are definitely people who who believe that, like, white efforts to introduce birth control into Black communities are an effort at genocide, and, like, I don't, I feel like that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about, but a lot of the points that people made about this particular aspect of her work are are based on things that were not actually true. So, uh, rather than raising up all the various other points that people made in their emails uh, about this um, in order to refute them, <laughs> because people said a lot of false things to us in these emails. Uh, we are going to link to a few fact checks about Margaret Sanger in the show notes um, for this episode. So, yeah, long story short, we have never turned away from the fact that Margaret Sanger was into eugenics. But, like, Margaret Sanger was not really quite so relevant to the story that we were telling in that particular episode. And there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. dot com. we also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash mist history, and on Twitter at Mist in history. Our Tumblr is at mist dot dot com. We're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash mist history. Our Instagram. Is it Missed in History also? You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and find all kinds of information about anything your heart desires. And then you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. You will find show notes. uh, You will find the links to some fact checks that we just talked about in the show notes for this episode. Also, a searchable archive of every episode we have ever done. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com.